I'd like to say good morning and um, introduce myself. My name is Ron Clifton. I'm a candidate for a ruling elder here at Potomac Hills. Um, and before I start, I'd just like to uh, thank a few people for uh, all that they have done for me while I've gone through this training. First of all, uh, Dr. Dave and the other pastors uh, provided me tons of materials for this um, sermon. Would not have been able to uh, put it together without that. And also their comments, review, and coaching has been uh, extremely valuable. I'd also like to thank my lovely wife, Marina, uh, for her patience in uh, all the hours that I've spent in training and preparing for this, and also for her um, uh, for her idea for my introduction. Uh, she encouraged me in uh, what I should say, and I really appreciate that. It really kind of uh, brought this all together for me. Um, I'd also like to thank the, uh, the, the session for their help in my training and each and every one of you who have encouraged me and prayed for me. So let's, uh, let's turn to the passage for today. We're in Jeremiah 31, so if you turn uh, there, we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 40. And this is such an awesome passage, I'm really excited to uh, to get a chance to share this message with you. It's not only a message for the Israelites, but it's also a message for us. Um, I'll admit to you that being up here is a little overwhelming, so bear with me. But um, if you uh, open your Bibles, we will, uh, we will begin. So starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for the light by day and the fixed order of the moon and stars for the light by night, who stirs up the sea so that, it, so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And, measure, and the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill of Gareb, and shall then turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies 
and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be uprooted or overthrown anymore forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great and awesome God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Through the ages, you have made many promises to your people, promises that give us a hope for our present circumstances and for our future. Help us, Lord, to know you better so that we can understand and believe you are a faithful God. Open our ears that we might hear your word and allow your word to change our hearts. As we look at the new covenant this morning, help us explore and see the riches we have been given in Christ. Help me, Lord, speak clearly in spite of my nervousness. Enable your word to go forth and accomplish all you purpose for it today. We pray you would help us to see Jesus this morning, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. As we come into the beginning of May, we are fully into springtime. With springtime comes the expectation of new life and new beginnings all around us. We've already experienced the blossoms on the trees, and now all the leaves are appearing. Everywhere you turn, flowers are blooming. Springtime gives us a feeling of hope of new things everywhere. As a baseball fan, springtime means the start of another baseball season. As some of you might know, I am a huge baseball fan. I have been my entire life. My mom's youngest brother, Ken, is only three years older than me, and we were inseparable growing up. Uh, his interests were t closely tied with mine. Um, he was a baseball fan, so I was a baseball fan. He was a Cub fan, so I was a Cub fan. I became a Cub fan at a very young age. <clears throat> my grandfather would take me and my uncle to Cub games, and he would fill us with hot dogs. It was, it was awesome. Um, it was amazing going from a small rural community in northern Illinois, going to Wrigley Field in Chicago. First time I went into the stadium, I was really struck by the field, the, the colors, because I'd only seen the game in black and white, uh, and the size of the field. It was so much smaller than I expected. It looked huge on TV, and uh, it, it looked very small in person. We'd sit down, and then unfortunately the game would start uh, because we had to endure uh, less than stellar baseball back then. Uh, as many of you know, the Cubs went 108 years without winning a World Series. Uh, for many years, Cub fans, there wasn't much hope, uh, even in springtime. But all that changed in 2016 when the Cubs won the World Series, something I was convinced I would never see in my lifetime. Uh, but it did, and now Cub fans everywhere can be like most other fans with hope in springtime for another championship without having to wear an albatross of 100-plus years of curse wrapped around our necks. But this type of hope we all experience in one form or another in springtime is temporal. 
Eventually, as new life and excitement we experience each spring gives way to long, hot summers, and I don't like hot summer. Sorry, Dr. Dave. Um, or the realization that this year's ball club is not as good as advertised. This is the way of all worldly-based hope. It is temporal. It lasts only for a season, as Dave talked about last week. The hope we have in God's promises, although, are eternal. We're going to explore promises that God made to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. We have been working our way through the book of Jeremiah. As Dave discussed last week, the first 28 chapters deal with people's sin and the impending judgment and exile. Chapter 29 begins a change Jeremiah's, with Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. Now we are in the midst of four chapters of God's promises of restoration. In our passage today, we'll be looking at three promises that God made to Israel and Judah these promises include promises of a new covenant, a new guarantee, and a new city. These promises, since they are from God, are sources of eternal hope for His people, both then and now. We'll explore the different time horizons woven into this passage, and we'll wrap up our study today by seeing how this passage to the people of Israel impacts us today. So let's begin by looking at verses 31 through 34, a new covenant. You'll obviously recognize this from the responsive call to worship uh, in Hebrews 8. Uh, that passage is the longest continuous quote from the Old Testament, and so we'll read it here again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. From the Westminster Dictionary of Theological Terms, the definition of a covenant is a formal agreement or treating between two parties establishing a relationship in which obligations and mutual responsibilities may be enacted. Tim Keller defines a biblical covenant as a bond creating a peculiar kind of relationship. He refers to it as a stunning blend of law and love. We will see as we compare the old covenant with the new covenant how these covenants are the same, but more importantly, we will see how they are different. Verse 31 starts with the Lord declaring the days are coming when he will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Both houses are included to stress God's unity uh, amongst his people. Verse 32, we see God referring to the Old Covenant. The Old Testament reveals the covenants of God with man, starting in Genesis 2 with the covenant of works that he made with Adam. After the fall, God made covenant of grace starting with Adam. 
He then proceeded to unfold this covenant through Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. The specific reference to the old covenant in Jeremiah, uh, verse 32, probably refers to the Mosaic covenant uh, made on Mount Sinai. The Apostle Paul describes the purpose of the old covenant in Galatians 3, 23 through 25. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Jeremiah has spent most of his book chronicling how the Israelites repeatedly uh, broke the old covenant. Recall from Jeremiah 11, 3 through 4, You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people and I will be your God. In fact, if you recall, the Israelites immediately broke the covenant that Moses received on Mount Sinai when they proceeded to cast a golden calf in Exodus 32. God mended that covenant at that time, but only through the intercession of Moses. Unfortunately, in Jeremiah's time, there is no Moses to intercede. And if you remember, God explicitly prohibited Jeremiah from praying for the people, as we saw in Jeremiah 7, 16. As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. So, as we can see, this is a big problem for the Israelites. As exiles, what is it going to take for the Israelites to return? Oh, thank you. To return to God and be restored. Moses gives them the answer, gives them the answer in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 3, where he says, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So, how can the people return with their whole heart? They can, uh, when their hearts have been so sinful and so rebellious. Recall back in chapter 24, Jeremiah gives us a glimpse of what is to come when he wrote what God, that God considered the exiles as good, as good figs and indicated what he planned to do about this problem. He said in Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. This sounds a lot like what we're about to see in the new covenant in 
verses 33 and 34. So there are four basic elements in the new covenant listed in, in those two verses, which are also found in the old covenant. So there is continuity between the two covenants, but there's also discontinuity. This discontinuity exposes the radical newness of how these elements are going to be experienced and practiced. The first element of the covenant is an internalized obedience, or in other words, responding from the heart to God's law. In Hebrew, the heart is the seat of the will. It is where we do our thinking, our choosing, and our deciding. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 6.6 6 speaks of God's commands being on the hearts of his people. However, in, in the context of the new covenant, God is promising, as Jed uh, pointed out, that he is going to put his law within them. He says in verse 33a, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. <clears throat> this is an important new characteristic of the new covenant. It is a genuine internalization of the law which gives God's people the power to obey and live according to his standards. Let me repeat that. It is a genuine internalization of the law which gives God's people the power to obey and live according to his standards. The Israelites just did not have the, the ability to do this. Paul described it in this way in 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Please understand, there was nothing wrong with the law as Paul says in Romans 7, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. The problem is with us and our inability to obey God's command without a radical change to our hearts. Romans 8 shows us through regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to walk in a manner pleasing to God before I became a believer, before God changed my heart, I had no ability to obey God or do anything pleasing to Him. In fact, I had little interest in anything concerning God. Dr. Philip Ryken's commentary on Jeremiah and Lamentations quotes Jonathan Edwards on the New Covenant in this way. I think the difference here be pointed out between these two covenants lies plainly here that in the old covenant, God promised to be their God upon the condition of hearty obedience. Obedience was stipulated as a condition, but not promised. But in the new covenant, this hearty obedience is promised. The second element of the new covenant is a reciprocal relationship with God found in the second half of verse 33. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This relationship is referenced throughout the Bible in both the Old and New Testaments. The indwelling of the Spirit provides a nearness of God in the New Covenant that was not present in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, God promises to walk amongst the people if they walk in His statutes and observe His commandments, just as we heard from Jonathan Edwards. However, as we saw in the previous element, the people of the Old Covenant did not have the power to obey. 
Therefore, they fail to maintain this relationship with God. For me, having a relationship with, with God was farthest from my mind before I was a believer. Until God changed my heart, this type of reciprocal relationship with God was impossible no matter how often I went to church. I imagine this is the point of the new heart that God has promised the Israelites in the new covenant. The third element of the new covenant is a universal knowledge of God found in verses, verse 34a. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. What does this mean to know God? Knowing God means you are committed to relating to Him in love, loyalty, and obedience. It is more than just knowing His name or knowing a set of affirmations about Him. Before the exile, Israel just did not know God. They were in rebellion, committing idolatry and all sorts of evil. Recall in Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, that Jeremiah indicates what it means to know God. He says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For, these, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So we know God when we are able to do the things he delights in. For me, this element of the new covenant has been huge in the growth and maturity of my faith and my walk with Christ. Before I was a believer, I knew of God. I knew that Jesus came to earth to die for sins. However, that, that knowledge had little or no impact on me. It was just knowledge. It was just facts. Even right after God changed my heart and I became a believer, I still didn't know God in the way that Jeremiah describes in this passage. And this was evident in how I continued to live my life shortly after I became a believer. It wasn't until God brought Marina into my life that I saw Christ's impact on her life that things changed for me. The key for me has been to know God better, who He is and what He's done. And in that way, this has allowed me to know myself better. Once I started down the path of really knowing God... I started to see growth and maturity in my Christian life. So back to our passage. Uh, the final element of the new covenant is the total forgiveness from God found in verse 34b. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The forgiveness of sins found in the new covenant is the foundation of all the promises. Uh, as seen in Hebrews 10 12 through 14, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until the enemy should be made a footstool for him. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. The new covenant offers unqualified forgiveness. Let me repeat that. 
the new covenant offers unqualified forgiveness. For, it is forgiveness without reference to temple or to sacrifice. This is entirely a new work of redemption, securing forgiveness, making possible the inner transformation that we talked about uh, previously. And it gives the forgiven the power to obey. You can see how all this stuff is, is tied together, how these promises uh, work together and um, uh, enable each other. Again, this is something that the Old Covenant couldn't provide. As you can see, total forgiveness of God is the basis for all these promises in the New Covenant. For me, in my early Christian walk, Grace was a very difficult concept for me to grasp and really hold on to it. It was just like holding a fistful of smoke. Um, I just didn't get it, probably because I didn't know God well enough. Uh, I honestly and earnestly started to learn about God and all of His characteristics, especially His holiness. Once I did that, I began to know Him and, important, more importantly, know myself. This is when grace started to make sense to me. I was able to accept the grace of God that he was freely offering me. Now back to verse 34. What does the end of verse 34 mean when it says, God doesn't remember something? Doesn't God know everything? Does he really forget stuff? Of course, God doesn't really forget anything. We forget stuff. I forget stuff all the time. Just ask Marina. In the Bible, when God remembers something or someone, he acts. Recall in 1 Samuel, a story of Hannah where she prayed for a son, and God remembered her. She conceived and gave birth to Samuel. On the other hand, if God chooses not to remember, this mean he, means he takes no further action. Recall in the Old Covenant how the priests had to offer sacrifices over and over. We go back to Hebrews 10, verse 11, where it says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. You can clearly see the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant in regards to the once for all sacrifice for sins accomplished by Christ. Christ's sacrifice for his people enables God to remember their sin no more. So I've made lots of references to the book of Hebrews uh, as we've gone through this first section. One commentator stated, whereas Hebrews, <clears throat> whereas Jeremiah 31 briefly mentioned the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant, Hebrews 8 through 10 expands upon this comparison in detail. What Hebrews 8 through 10 explains is that the fulfillment of God's new covenant promises from Jeremiah 31 is foundational to the essence of Christianity, especially in regards to our salvation and to the understanding of Christ. For a more thorough exposition of these chapters in, in Hebrews, I commend you to revisit our sermon series entitled, Jesus is Better, from uh, 2015. So the promise of the new covenant is not the only promise that God is making here. He also made, in verses 35 through 37, a new guarantee. 
Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that it, its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. God is the God of both creation and redemption. He can use both to inspire faith and hope. The exiles in Babylon had to fear that they would cease to exist as a nation as a result of their exile. Recall from Jeremiah 7:29, he says, "Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath." So what's God's response to this generation? He's obviously rejected them, but he has not rejected future generations of the Israelites. Recall what we discussed earlier from chapter 24, how God referred to the exiles as good, as good figs. Here in verses 35 and 36, based on his sovereignty over creation, God guarantees that Israel will continue as a nation before him forever. Also in verse 37, God points to the incredible vastness of his creation, how it cannot be measured or explored as the guarantee that he will not cast Israel off for what they have done. God uses these metaphors encompassing the entirety of his creation from the top to the bottom and even including the chaos of the sea to emphasize his commitment to his people. Their continued existence is rooted not in their own faithfulness, but in God's faithfulness. So as an example of God's faithfulness, we have to look no farther than our own salvation. It is the Father's will that Jesus would lose none of those that he has been given. Recall what Jesus said in John 6, 39 through 40, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day for this, will, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If it were up to us to make it to the finish line, we would surely all fall away. Paul echoes this example in Philippians 1.6 where he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is not done making promises here. Next, he promises in verse 38 through 40, a new city. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill of Garib, and shall turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes, and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, 
shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be uprooted or overthrown anymore forever. God ends chapter 31, the second chapter of these restoration promises, with a promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. This promise has to serve as a great comfort to those who survived the exile. There's obviously a near-term fulfillment of this promise, as we see in uh, the book of Ezra. However, the overall language used in this passage point to something beyond just wood and stone. If we look back earlier in Jeremiah, God originally rejected the city. Jeremiah 26 says, Then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. Yet here we see in verses 38 and 40, the city will be, will be rebuilt for the Lord, and it will be sacred to the Lord. God is not only reclaiming His people through the new covenant, He is also reclaiming His city. So the city that once bore His name will bear His name again. If we look at verse 40, we see another interesting aspect. We see how the language of permanence is used to describe the city. So how are, we, how are we to reconcile this promise made in verse 40 when we know what happens with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? Verse 40 is not the only verse in this passage pointing to more than just an immediate fulfillment of His promises. Recall back in verse 34, the phrases no longer and no more are used and have a similar aspect of permanence. The use of these phrases leads us to consider the fulfillment of these promises across multiple time horizons. So let's pause and explore these time horizons. As we examine the text before us today, we see three distinct threads woven through it, finding their fulfillment in three different time horizons. The first is a post-exilic time horizon. The second is a messianic time horizon, and the third is an eternal time horizon. So let's take a quick look at each of these horizons. The post-exilic time horizon represents an immediate fulfillment of these promises to the exiles after they return from captivity. From 538 B.C. onward, exiles return to Judah in groups to rebuild their country and their city. We can read about their efforts in both the books of Ezra and Nehemiah as they strive to rebuild their community on a commitment to God and to God's law. So these prophecies and promises find a measure of fulfillment in this first horizon in a restored community in Judah. The Messianic time horizon represents uh, the second time horizon, and it represents a fulfillment of the new covenant promises found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have discussed in great detail the total forgiveness of God found in the new covenant as a result of what Jesus accomplished. The book of Hebrews makes the total and complete forgiveness of sins under the new covenant the focus of chapters 8 through 10. Thus, the promises of the new covenant find fulfillment in the second horizon through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Finally, the third time horizon 
the eternal time horizon, represents a fulfillment of these promises and prophecies in eternity. There are depths and dimensions to the new covenant promises that seemingly point beyond the first horizon and beyond the second horizon. In reference to verse 34, we now live in the church age, but we still need teachers to teach us the things of God. And Paul stresses this need for teaching and for teachers. Also, the end of verse 40, as we spoke uh, recently, indicates that the rebuilt city will never be destroyed, even though we know it was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. The ultimate fulfillment of this promise must be in this third horizon. There can be no, no other uh, answer. We read from Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 3, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The city of God, the new Jerusalem, will never pass away in eternity. And as verse 40 says, it will be sacred to the Lord. So let's uh, wrap up the message today by talking about how does this message impact us today? It was a uh, promises given by Jeremiah to the people of Israel. So let's look at what God promises God delivers. What has God promised under the new covenant? What have we learned from this passage? First, if you are in Christ, then God has given you a new heart and the power to obey. Second, if you're in Christ, you are in a reciprocal relationship with, with God, and you are no longer separated from Him. Third, if you're in Christ, then you know God. Just as Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This gives us an assurance of our salvation. Finally, if you're in Christ, you are comforted in knowing that you have total forgiveness and no longer have to deal with, deal, no longer have to live in guilt and shame due to sin. So, my friends, how, do, how does God keep these promises? He does through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. How can we be sure of this? Paul gives us the answer in 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Jeremiah challenged the Israelites to know God as the only means to overcome their sin. The same challenge to know God applies to us. So, 
Do you struggle with guilt and shame? You need to know God both more and better. Do you struggle to obey God's word? You need to know God both more and better. Do you struggle to believe God would really save you? You need to know God more and better. Do you struggle to believe that God would really want to have a relationship with you? You need to know God more and better. So how do we know God? We know God by knowing Jesus Christ. Remember what we just read from John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So how do you know Jesus? More importantly, do you want to know Jesus? We're about ready to come to the Lord's table for communion, so now would be a good time to answer those questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your promises. You promise us a new covenant which finds its fulfillment in your Son, Jesus Christ. You promise us a new heart and the power to obey you. You promise us that we can be in a right relationship with you. You promise us that we can know you. You promise us a forgiveness of our sins. All these promises, Father, are accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that he accomplished here on earth and all he is accomplishing in heaven at your right hand. We pray that these promises, these foundational truths, would sink deep into our hearts and change us. For we know that real change comes from you and through your word. Prepare us now as we come to your table for communion. It is in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. As 